live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. And a pleasant good afternoon or an evening for everybody listening in to the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with the original Hydro Man, also known as Mr. Chris Davey. Chris, how are you doing? Welcome to the Water Zone Show. Awesome. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, welcome yourself as we are uh, assessing a mutual admiration society here. How's it going in Arizona? It's nice, a beautiful day of almost 90 degrees. Uh, no winds. Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful sky, and uh, uh, it's just great to be here. It's wonderful. Nice, nice, nice weather. You, how, how are you doing? Yeah, pretty soon out there in Arizona. You know, I was there last weekend, Rob, because as, uh, as, as you know, not quite frying egg on the sidewalk warmth, but it was a, it was a good toasty weekend. Uh, well, did you bring extra gas? Gas cans to fill up here before you drove home to Los Angeles. <laughs> I did. You know, I wish I could have. I wish I could have paid Arizona prices both ways. But <laughs> you guys are a buck less than us here in California. A buck. I, I, I know. I know. It's uh, four about four forty right now. The average. Four seventy nine uh, when uh, when I got back and filled my tank. I mean, uh, sorry, five seventy nine. Yeah. And if you go up towards Beverly Hills or downtown, it's like close to seven dollars. Yeah. So on the news today, just as a matter of reference, there was for the first time I've seen it, there was a gas station uh, out by the beach, uh, seven oh nine. Wow. I guess you got to be pretty desperate for gas to spend seven oh nine a gallon. <laughs> a lot of money. Well. So we've got some things going on in, 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 in our industry, especially with the uh, Irrigation Association. They got some uh, things and they've given us some uh, public service announcements. Uh, and you did such a great job last time. I thought I'd let you do the next one. Oh, no problem. I'll be happy to do it. So this is the Irrigation Association. Their uh, program that's running right now is called Watch Us Grow. It's the 2022 Industry Standout uh, Award. So. You know, if you're if you're in the landscape or the lighting uh, industry, it doesn't matter if your company's big or it's small. If you've got a success that you want to be celebrated, now is the time to um, to be recognized. Right? Send an entry into the IA. It's on their website. Send an entry into the IA to be recognized. Tell them about your success story or innovative business thinking, anything that you've been involved with that has made your company more successful. You'll also be entered into winning. There's a drawing for a solo stove bonfire uh, fire pit. So the uh, deadline is tomorrow, uh, March 25th. So just uh, go to irrigationandlighting.org and submit your application. And, and the irrigation and what? How is the letter N? Is it the? Uh, You're absolutely right, uh, Rob. It's uh, irrigationandlighting.org. Sorry. Good. No, no, that, that's fine. It's good because you never know how 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 they do these things, and, and we want to make that's sure. Right. It's well, and, yep. Yeah. And so, spelled out, not the ampersand. Great, great, great. So, uh, as Chris said, uh, those people in the industry, please take advantage of that. It's a great time to be recognized and uh, get some great publicity out of it, and all that. So, you know, since we're talking about all things water, like we always do, because that's what the show is about, we should bring on our most favorite. News person for California Water News, Miss Chris Austin, all the way from up north in California. 
course hey, every, hey, everybody. <laughs> how you doing? All We're right. fine. You know, I, I know I'm supposed to talk about water, but I want to return to those gas prices for a minute. Sure. Because... You know, I I am well aware in Southern California, and I do think in California in general, you pay more for gas. But definitely, I think you do in Southern California because they put additives in there to make the air cleaner. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know how long you lived in Southern California. I lived there 30 years. And when I came to Southern California in 1989, the air quality was horrible. I mean, you there were times we, you couldn't see five blocks in front of you for the combination of the smog and the fog and all the whatnot. Yep. So, you know, it, it worries me. <laughs> When the young people complain about the gas prices because they they don't remember, they weren't alive. But if you lived in Southern California 30 years ago versus the air that's there now, which isn't great, but, I mean, you know, Southern California used to set records with the amount of smog. And the work that they've done to reduce that smog is, is considerable and it does include special formulations in our gas but um you know <laughs> there's a benefit to that no but I, 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 I agree with you i mean i'll go back even a little further in time you know when gas was like 23 cents a gallon and back in the late 60s and i know going to boarding school we had activities outside they used to put announcements out to schools you know to not go outside anymore. No, don't do gym. Don't do sports outside because it was bad. And yes, it's greatly it's greatly improved. I, I, I and this will be the last political statement I'll make for the show tonight. But you know what? What I find kind of weird is that the governor is now talking about giving everybody a, a check uh, uh, oh. to make up for the gas tax. And, and see, I don't think that's fixing the problem. No, it, it, it's not, and it's not really distributing the benefits to who they belong to, because I right. will get $400 for my car, but I never go anywhere. I'm not paying that money. You know? I, I, so, bet you, I bet you people will go out and get old cars, or if they have them that aren't working, they'll go register them to get the monies back. Well, you you can only get two per household, and it's probably going to go on our registrations at a certain point, not in the future, but in the past. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, no, oh. it's not effective. Uh, it, def- it it definitely is. Along with that, I should also point out he's providing funding to make public transit free for everybody to sort of try and even out the the uh, the benefit but no i i don't i don't think it's the accurate way to go <laughs> to go about it no no even, i even, can't tell you what it is but i'm like great i'm getting four hundred dollars and and that's pretty much you know income to me because i hardly drive anywhere well i i i think just taking that money that way uh instead of just eliminating the gas tax for a couple months uh, the state gas tax would be very, very helpful. But anyway, that's that's all I got to say on that subject tonight. Yeah, so, you know, let, let's move on to water. And, 
you know, I'm going to start out by saying that I think that the people in the state, uh, the officials in the state are trying to get out in, um, they've held various press conferences all over the state trying to get the message out that uh, we need to be conservative of water. Uh, we have a real problem on our hands. Our reservoirs are low, our snowpack is skimpy, and we really need, I mean, you know, for those who want to say, well, just take it from the farmers, the thing is the farmers aren't getting any water this year either. So it's not, there's not another place it can come from. I mean, we really need people to, you know, wake up to this problem and pay attention. But the, the statistics are showing that it's kind of going the other way. People are using more water, not less water. Um, I know there's a lot of things going on these days. You know, um, a lot of stories in the headlines, but uh, this one is really mission critical uh, for everyone in California to pay attention to. And I'm just not sure that message is getting out. Well, you look at you look at the Shasta and all the other dams. You look at Mono Lake at the low levels that they're seeing. Uh, you know, they're even starting to talk about should should they institute ethics for groundwater. Uh, storage, things of that sort. There's, there's positives and negatives things of what lands and farms do, and they're worried about, uh, you know, development and putting in, you know, cement and impervious pavers and things of that sort. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues that are on the table today about that. Um, and you're right. You don't hear a lot about it, but I think the, the, the world news is sort of taking over uh, what's happening. That's the majority of the news these days. Yeah, and it's just hard to, uh, you know, to, to compete, I guess, with all the other very important stories that are going on, you know, these days. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see where this goes, but hydrology speaking, it's not looking good for, for us here. And we really need to be paying more attention to these issues. Agreed. When do you think somebody's going to pull the plug and, and ask, demand more, a certain percentage to, to, to conserve? Well, you know, the hard part is that uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, the Newsom administration has been trying to pe trying to encourage people to conserve 15%. But a, a, an across-the-board cut, to, you know, water for every water agency in the state just just doesn't really, I mean, at, at, on the top, it sounds like it makes sense, but when you start digging into the details, it, it doesn't. What about the water agencies that have prepared for this and that have water in storage, or perhaps they've been managing their groundwater basins adequately all the time, and, and they're not really having a problem at this point. It's, you know, and, and you could, then, then you would also be saying to people, you know, such as myself that live in Chico that are on the ground, are on groundwater in Chico, you know, that that's not, while 
groundwater recharge is definitely affected by precipitation. That doesn't necessarily affect, you know, the amount in the aquifer. There's a lot of factors that go into that. So, you know, it's one thing to say those people who are dependent on surface water have to conserve a, a certain amount, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's just very uneven how it could possibly be implemented around the state. This was a big problem in the 2014 drought, and it resulted in a lot of uh, litigation, yep. uh, you know, as to whether the state water board had the authority to mandate this. No. So, you know, I mean, and I'm not sure how it's going to play out now. Uh, the state water board has been very active in trying to, you know, regulate the rivers, uh, like the Russian River and and other rivers here, and they they've established emergency regulations and gone through several processes. They're really trying to do things differently than they did in the last drought. Yeah. Uh, well, but, a lot of you know the water agencies achieved mostly the twenty five percent. Yes, there were lots of lawsuits, like. Um, in the city Riverside Public Utilities, the San Diego, there's been there was lots of lawsuits because those those districts manage their water really well. But now when you look at you know the, the the recharging of water, you know if you if you take farms that get rid of the crops that take a lot of water, go to low use water, well they're not going to bury a lot of water is going to go seep it into the ground. That's that's not going to happen. And you know, and, and we're what the, one of the largest or the largest producer of agriculture for produce in the country. And, and, and well, I I know it's about forty percent. This okay. the most recent statistic I said. So yes, uh, California is definitely a major producer of food products, not only to you know the United States but to the the world. Yeah. However. When there's no water, there's no water. And I know that is very painful in, you know, the farming communities now to be dealing with this. But uh, on the other hand, I also don't think that the agencies are stashing large amounts of water in secret places. I mean, it's just not there. There is a certain amount of water that they have to release down the rivers not only to keep the species alive, the fish in the river alive, but also it's needed in the delta to keep the salt water out of the delta because the delta is connected to the bay and the ocean. So you just can't turn off the rivers and preserve everything in them. Water is going to have to flow out of them. And, uh, you know, this is... It, it, it's a really tough time to be a farmer right now, you know, because normally they would turn to groundwater, but now we have groundwater management, so they can't hit their groundwater as hard. It's a very serious um, situation, uh, and it's going to be hard on all of us. I'm sure it's going to result in uh, higher food prices, but the water just is not there. And, you know, maybe one of our listeners out there can summon the unicorns that pour water from their horns to fill our reservoirs. 
we've been looking for those unicorns for decades, and, and yeah. they're not here. So, you know, others bearing the unicorns, you know, we're we're in for some really really tough times. What what would with the people that you know? What do you think the state's going to do going forward if it continues for another year, at least a year? Well, they're yeah. trying. Part of the hard part about deciding how much water to release out of the reservoirs this year, it's also a bit of, you know, how much water do we leave in the reservoirs if next year is dry? We have to think about this, or the state and the feds have to think about this. So, I mean, I'm not exactly sure where we're going. The state has pretty much said it's going to be health and safety needs only, you know, enough water to the communities that need it so they can, you know, they have drinking water and and they can suppress fires and all that. But, I mean, it's tough time. And kind of getting in the middle of all this is climate change. Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of impacts right now, impacts that, you know, a few years ago were projected to occur in 2030 or 2040, and here it is, they're happening now. And it has messed up the forecasting that uh, the Department of Water Resources and other agencies do because they're kind of relying on models that are looking at historical data, but we're having conditions that are outliers. Uh, they're not even things that were even perceived as being possible to happen. Uh, you know, say when you build the model, you you try and figure out, you know, this is the worst, you know, the driest case we could have, and this is the wettest case we could have. And we're getting events that are outside those boundaries. And so that's a real challenge for, and, and we're talking about government agencies, which are not exactly known for being nimble, <laughs> you know. But I will say that the Department of Water Resources is putting funding in to kind of trying to figure out the answer, but the answer isn't coming that. So. Mr. Davey, you have any thoughts on what our state should do, California should do? Um, I do. I can I can attribute to a more local scenario for you, though, here, because this very conversation and the, and the thoughts and the things that Chris uh, uh, just mentioned are hitting close to home for me, right here along the south, southern facing slope of the San Gabriel Mountains, where I live in the foothill communities. The digital version of the newspaper today had a headline in it that says, hey, we're looking retro six years back to 2016 when uh, where the, the communities here along the foothills are looking at reinstituting the um, the uh, measures that they had in the in the original drought. It didn't say anything about you know how it was going to be uh, managed, but it's mostly outdoor watering and it's going to, um, you know, go back to how many days per week you can water depending on your street address and of course reminders and PSAs about hey make sure that you you know you're careful when you're washing your cars and 
using hoses with shutoffs and, you know, don't wash your sidewalks and buildings and patios and stuff like that. So um, I'm not sure how that's going to happen, uh, when it's going to happen, but the foothill communities here are going to vote on it uh, in this in the April meeting. Well, yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, and, and, and how, how they, you know, the, the, the thing I, I think is going to be hard for them to, to really manage it in the sense that some people will use the water they want to use, and yes, they'll probably get fined for it, but people that have the money, like up in Beverly Hills or some affluent areas, you know, I, I, I visited there with uh, Debbie Fagoni a couple of years ago, who's the, who we had on our show, and there's people with multiple pools on site. We went to one house and it had seven, seven swimming pools, seven. I couldn't believe it, it was like a hotel, but it was a house, a single house. But, you know, and, and, and the gentleman that owned it said, I can afford to pay for the water, so I don't care what it is. So do you, do you think they'll ever get to a position where a water agency will basically shut off the water or reduce the, the flow to that house? Well, yeah. I'll, I'll jump in here and I'll say that, um, you know, there is a, a section in the California state constitution that says that your water use must be reasonable. And I think in the middle of a drought, having seven swimming pools in at one house would probably test. So um, I think there, you know, theoretically, there could be, you know, some some kind of legal action that comes to bear on that. Yeah. Although I would say it's not likely to happen, um, you know, until somebody, you know, gets, until things get tough in Beverly Hills. Yeah. I, I agree. That's, that. one, that's one of the unevenness parts about our society is those that want to waste can afford to pay for that waste and therefore they waste while others who you know can't afford it uh you know kind of suffer absolutely yeah yeah you know you've got you've got the pundits also you know looking at the other side of the coin here chris you've got the pundits who are saying hey another drought right maybe that's going to help urge the legislature to you know, do something to require completion of these long-delayed, you know, water uh, infrastructure plans and water quality issues and all that kind of stuff. What do you What do you think about that? I mean, is that you know that's I hate to call it right side, but you know, I mean that's that's one of the things the proponents are pointing out. Well, yeah, and I think you know, in a lot of ways, there are there's a lot of processes here in California that were that are kind of wrapping around. One of those is uh, back in Jerry Brown's Governor Jerry Brown's day, he passed a law called you know, conservation is a California way of life, which instituted you know sort of boundaries for water use in urban areas and, uh, in, you know, what they call commercial, industrial, and I don't know, whatever, um, CII, figure uh, large landscapes like at colleges and, you know, maybe large areas where people gather. And they instituted, you know, some rules for conservation for those areas. 
And those regulations, you know, I mean, once you pass a law, that doesn't mean that all these regulations are in effect. They had to develop these, right? And so they've been working on this for many years. They're they're recommending a lower indoor water standard, and there's an outdoor water standard. And the state has actually, I believe, already paid and already accomplished to have a satellite flyover of of all these urban areas uh, to give a parcel by parcel look at how much uh, grass and vegetation you have versus hardscape and to set a water budget for your property that is based on, you know, what is on your property. And this is all gets rolled up into this indoor budget and outdoor budget and where, you know, the water agencies are going to try to get people to to move towards. Theoretically, There are fines involved with this, and, and this legislation often gets confused with people saying, you know, if you wash your clothes and take a shower on the same day, it's bad. But it's not. It's not all that. It's highly tailored, um, and it's really modeled on the electrical system, you know, to reduce power usage by encouraging you to use less electricity, i.e. get solar panels or whatever. So the idea is they put this in place for the water agencies and their job is to encourage you to use less and stay within your water budget. Right, right. You know, there's so, there's so much going on right now, Chris. Uh, it, you know, it's incredible. And, you know, I read the stuff on uh, on your website, spectacular website, by the way, and all the stuff that's going on there. Just just keeping up with this stuff. I mean, how do you how do you do it, Chris? Every day, uh, it's got to be a, it's got to be a challenge. Oh, it's a, it's a lot of work. I'll tell you that. But I, I really get, enjoy what I do. Yeah, I get the you know I get all the stuff that's going on. I, I love the stories, especially you know today you had one about you know returning to wild unrestricted waterways. You, you I, I don't know if you if you read that one, but Absolutely great article. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of great ideas out there, um, and we'll we'll see where it all goes. We will indeed. All right. So, uh, Chris, uh, anything else particular that you want to bring up this week before uh, we cut? We got a bit of a short, shorter segment. We can go a minute. But uh, did we miss anything? Um, I, I'm going to say no. I'm, I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking I should have been done by now. So. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you are indeed. You're, you're absolutely right. Chris, well, as always, uh, great having you on the show uh, this week. Welcome for our listeners, by the way. Uh, go to mavensnotebook.com, contribute, become a sponsor, become a listener, sign up for the daily emails that come out. Uh, uh, to your uh, cell phone, laptop, iPad, uh, template, anything you want uh, every single day. Uh, Chris Austin, thanks again for being uh, on the show this week, and we'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Have a great day.
You too. All right, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back in just a minute with our featured guest, and that happens to be a lady named Debbie Franco, who's a friend of our our, our wonderful lady who was just on. And uh, so stick around. We'll take our little commercial break, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is 1050 AM KCAA Loma Linda and 106.5 FM Yucaipa. They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it. Instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers. And you can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock. Because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes. A better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied, fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied, fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the technical service hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. Miss your favorite show? Download the podcast at kcaaradio.com. All right. Uh, welcome back to the second half of the uh, Water Zone with uh, Chris and Rob. I hope everybody's having a great evening. And uh, we do thank uh, our, our, our past guest to come on, who comes on every single week, uh, Miss Chris Austin. And she does give the best. Best water updates that we can find, and she's the one in the know. I've always said before, uh, you go to www.mavensnotebook.com, become a subscriber. You can become a, uh, a sponsor if you'd like, and you get uh, all the water news every single day on your PC first thing in the morning. So it's a great, great source. So I'm going to let uh, Mr. Davey uh, introduce our featured guest for the evening, Chris. 
Mr. Starr, thank you very much. You are you are an amazing co-host and colleague, and I uh, I appreciate that as always. But listen, guys, we've got a we got a really great guest for you tonight. Her name is Debbie Franco, and she's the managing director of Water Solutions Network. So this network provides uh, an intensive cohort-based learning experience, which is designed to expand and diversify the community of water leaders in our various industry segments. Now the network does this by you know, crossing boundaries, connecting resources, uh, choosing bold actions all the time while collaborating uh, toward an equitable and sustainable land and water stewardship. So a little history about Debbie before she joined Water Solutions Network. Debbie spent 10 years in the California Governor's Office of Planning and Research, ultimately serving as the Senior Advisor on Water and Rural Affairs. And in that role, she was known for her commitment to collaboration across agencies, between agencies, and between stakeholders. Debbie served on Governor Brown's Drought Task Force, too, as a local drought liaison, focusing on local government, of course, and on local agency assistance and household water supply shortages. Rob, can you add more? Oh, absolutely. This lady comes fully fully armed with uh, uh, credentials. Um, she also served on the Forest Management Task Force that spanned the Brown and Newsom administrations, leading the Rural Economic Development Steering Committee and Wood Utilization Workgroup. Debbie participated in and contributed to the development of California's Historic Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Uh, Debbie also sits on the Board of Directors for the California Water Data Consortium and the Advisory Council for the Public Policy Institute of California's Water Policy Center. She was the inaugural recipient of the Debbie Davis Graduate Student Award a recognition named in her honor, and that's her maiden name, and still awarded by UC Irvine Associate uh, Graduate Students. She also received the Planning and Conservation League's Environmental Justice Advocate of the Year Award in 2010. And Debbie holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from UC Davis and a Master's of Arts degree in Social Ecology from UC Irvine. I think she's well-suited for everything she does in the world of water. So, Debbie, welcome to the show. Why, thank you so much, and um, gosh, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're an incredible person. We appreciate that. We only want we only want people that are notable on our show, and you're one of those people. Well, I'm glad to be here. Great. So one of, one of, one of the things that we always we always start the show uh, with new guests is gets a little bit more. What got you involved in the water industry? What made you choose that career that you really wanted to splash right in? Well, you know, I, it actually kind of chose me. I, I um, wasn't really looking for a job in water. I really wanted to do something in the social justice um, world. And I was looking for a job during an economic downturn. So I kind of felt like I had to take anything I could get <laughs> and the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. Um, they they snatched me up and I, I was, I have to say, in retrospect, I've been so grateful because I, I really, I feel like water is such a connecting element for everything, um, and it certainly is the foundation for life. So, um, so I'm grateful to work in this sector. <clears throat> so I, I got sort of sucked in, and I haven't looked back. Well, it's a pretty fluid uh, industry. It surely is. I'll keep, my day, I'll keep my day job. I'm not a comedian. <laughs> you're, on a, you're on a roll, Rob. I tell you, the splash reference was great at the beginning here, and now, oh, my goodness, what's next? Well, you're up, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
Well, I'll tell you, uh, uh, Debbie, welcome to the show for sure. Um, let's uh, let's start by, uh, let's dig right in into um, Water Solutions Network, right? For our listeners, kind of, can you give them the, you know, the quintessential 30,000 view and, you know, kind of what does, what does uh, the Water Solutions Network do? When was it established? And uh, we'll start there. Sure. So um, the Water Solutions Network was was originally imagined by the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation, who were getting to the end of their, um, they, they were spending down their endowment and trying to figure out, like, where had they left gaps. And one of the gaps they identified was um, the importance of relationships in getting anything done. And so, um, so that's sort of the birth of the idea for the network. Um, and they have they generously funded five cohorts. We're actually just about to launch our fifth cohort. Um, so we've been around for a little more than five years. And um, and the idea is that uh, we bring a cohort of folks together each year, and we build their capacity, and we build their relationships among each other. Um, we we work with them to develop systems thinking skills and um, and 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 frankly to have fun because the best way to build a relationship with somebody is to have fun with them um, and the idea is that that these folks um, become a network of people around the state we're, we're up to 125 network members now who are poised to take bold action to achieve sustainable and equitable land and water stewardship in the state and as I understand it, you still have a you still have a Bechtel Foundation member on the advisory council. Is that true? We certainly do. Um, we have uh, Allison Harvey Turner, who's now at the Water Foundation. Um, she's part of our advisory council, and also Joya Banerjee, who all, the, both of them uh, came over from, or not didn't come over. They've been on our advisory council even back to when they were at SC Bechtel Junior Foundation. I'm I'm curious to to know what made you pick the terminology cohort in uh, in there or uh, uh, you know an interesting word that you don't see uh, see that often but but descriptive enough. Yeah, I mean I think cohort really re reflects on the the idea that you know a cohort is is a group that you're sort of building and so um so, so we wanted I think at some point the idea was to call it a fellows program, but we really wanted it to be clear that we were trying to build relationships within the group. So that's that's uh, why cohort fits. Well, you have, you, you, I know for a fact you have several astute members like Celeste Cantu, Felicia Marcus, AJ Karamura. They've been on our show as well in the, in the past, but uh, you, you have a bunch of real notable and powerful people on your advisory committee. And how does how does that help driving? Basically, I guess I'm getting to what kind of advocacy can they help you with or help do aside from helping come up with solutions and and doing it? Because coming up with ideas is one thing, but then you got to push them onto legislatures and other other people and and try to get these things enacted. How how does that work? Well, so we um, so they actually advise us on the programming for the for the um, network. Um, so they provide advice on what kind of um, curriculum that we provide to the cohort. Um, and then they also, they provide strategic um, direct, not direction, that's the wrong word, but they provide strategic information. Um, really, we see the actors in the network as the folks who are going through the cohort experience. Um, so, so our advisory council, those are our wise advisors. 
Um, but we're really looking to catalyze collaboration and action among our network members who are up and comers, who um, who are who also are, you know, like we have general managers of water districts are part have been have participated in our cohort experience, um, and so we're we really work to support um, their capacity to act together and to act boldly. A, a cast of characters like that certainly provides a broad baseline, uh, uh, just a, a, a ton of, uh, of industry and, and water sector knowledge. Um, so, so many great people on, uh, uh, on that list. Um, you've talked a little bit about Water Solutions Network, but do you have, is there an official kind of vision slash mission that, uh, that you guys uh, attune to? Yes, yeah, so the network is really, I mean, it's really about building the network. Um, I think, though, that as as the cohorts have evolved, and, and I actually, they, they just created this managing director position I've been in for about a year. Um, and so I've brought some other work to the network. Um, we are right now just wrapping up a high-level policy conversation about how we get to water scale, sh watershed scale action in the state. Um, I think... Uh, it, we definitely are aware of the fact that the climate is changing faster than our human capacity seems to be able to change. And so um, it, it, we're, really, we're really trying to figure out how we move more quickly and learn faster. Um, and, uh, and so we, we're really looking to figure out how we acknowledge and embrace the fact that water is part of a larger system and it can't be managed in a silo. It really needs to be managed as, you know, land and water really, you can't manage water if you're not managing land. You can't manage land if you're not managing water. <clears throat> so we convene this watershed framework discussion um, to, to try to, to figure out how do we get the right people to the table at watershed scale. And by that, I mean from the headwaters all the way to the ocean. And, and we're, we're even adding an, an extra challenge here because we're, we want to include engineered watersheds. So for Southern California, that might include uh, the, the Inyo Mono system or um, the Feather River system or the Colorado or potentially all three. <clears throat> and the idea is to get folks across, leaders across those watersheds together um, to establish some common values and to, to establish a common understanding of how the climate is changing their systems and where the vulnerability, their watershed systems and where the vulnerabilities are. Um, but most importantly, to catalyze watershed scale action. We have a lot of really good work that's going on within the context of, of, um, of specific agencies. And in Southern California, you actually have some good examples of this kind of work. Um, the the SAPA, which is the Santa Ana Watershed Protection Agency, I think. Gosh, we're so prone to acronyms. Um, <laughs> they, they have their One Water, um, or, or, or Oh Wow, which um, I'm sure Celeste, when she was when she talked with you, talked about. Um, but but we really need to do that statewide, and so so we're doing we're working on that. Um, and we're really working on figuring out what are the new tools that we have in our toolkit because. The, the ones that we've relied on for the last 150 years are really not up to the challenge of the unpredictable and extreme system that we're dealing with today. Well, yeah, true. so it's, it's not just chasing after, you know, climate issues, right? You're also looking at technology. You're looking at uh, economic impact. As you say, everything from from uh, from the headwaters out, out to the ocean. And it's, it's certainly a, a 
looks like you've got the brain trust to uh, to handle most of those things. Rob, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I heard you right there at the beginning. Go ahead. Rob. Oh no, 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 no. That that that's fine. Uh, I just wanted to add on to that. You know, uh, Celeste used to have a story about the four horsemen. I don't know if you ever heard her story about that of water, and that was something pretty notable when she was still at Sapa. But one of the things she talked about a lot uh, in, in presentations that both her and I made, <clears throat> you know, should water management stream across not only into the water districts and others, but to the general public. You know, it was the concept was everyone should treat their property as a watershed. And, and how do you feel on that? Do you think uh, we need to do a groundswell and, and start there or start with the higher ups in, in the industry? Well, I got to say, I think it's an all hands on deck moment. Um, we, we are kind of at a, um, a moment of cataclysm, but, but I 100% agree with Celeste. I, I phrase it a little differently. I, I would say every person is a land and water steward and everyone's actions matter. Um, and so just, you know, my, my top things when I'm talking to, you know, the, the average person who has, the, you know, a, a small plot of land or the great thing is, is that it doesn't really matter what size landscape you have. There are lots of opportunities to improve how land and water function on your property. Um, the, the rule of thumb is it, use every opportunity to slow sink spread and capture water on your property and, and use it as many times as you can on the property um, and, uh, and, and make sure that you're really investing in the health of your soil. I, I love the, the, um, the statistic that for every 1% of organic matter that you add to your soil, you could add up to 20,000 gallons of holding capacity per acre. And so you might just have one, you know, little patch of garden that you can improve the soil in. But imagine if all your neighbors did the same thing. Um, so, so the capacity to, to do this is, is, is as small as a parcel, and it gets bigger and better and more synergy if you get to a neighborhood scale. And then the holy grail is to get to watershed scale. Yeah. What do you, what do you see as the top three issues with water in the state, if you were, you were judging that? Well, I mean, I, I, I kind of touched on those a minute ago. I mean, really, the, the, I think the most important thing for every sector right now is how quickly our climate is changing and how that is entirely changing the game when it comes to just about everything we do in the state. Um, I think you look at the catastrophic wildfires that are happening. I mean, everyone in Southern California should be concerned about how the, the Feather River watershed is going to function since, I can't remember, I think 80 a very high percentage, I can't remember the specific percentage, but a very high percentage of that watershed burns. Um, you, it's, it's every little thing. I mean, it's, it will have economic impacts. It will have social impacts. We have um, disadvantaged and uh, under-resourced communities all over the state, uh, and, and, and they're struggling. They're, they're already experiencing the disruption to their lives from, from how quickly the climate is changing. Well, with, you know, yeah. you oh, you, I just want to ask you, you, you mentioned the fire issues and things. We, the state needs to do a better job in, in forest management because a lot of fire, yes, yes, fires are going to happen. We know that. Uh, but from what I've, what I understand is that there's lots of basic maintenance of forests that don't, doesn't occur. And that just helps to spread the fires even worse. Would you agree to that or not? Or, and that um, is, 
Yeah, absolutely. We have um, we have deferred maintenance on our forests for for way too long, um, and they are um, they're they're overgrown. And um, one thing we don't talk a lot about, but is also really important, is is we haven't not only have we not managed the trees, but we also haven't managed the hydrology in the forest, which is vitally important and will become more and more important as this, we lose our snowpack. Um, we have we have overgrown meadows. Another statistic I I, um, I carry in my hip pocket is that for every acre of meadow you restore, you can increase, this is on average, you can increase water supply by, by a half acre foot. That's about the amount of water that one family uses in a year. So wow. it's a significant impact. Um, because we silo everything, we're not necessarily set up um, we might have someone go in and do a tree thinning operation, and that has value for sure. But imagine if we could actually go in and look at a place and see it as a as a functioning system and try to get the system to work the best it can. Um, and the folks who know how to do this the best in the state are our indigenous communities, the folks who have been here and managing this place for thousands and thousands of years. Um, so I, I, I think a, a second thing that a second big uh, important topic in, in water and pretty much everything else is that we have expertise in the state that we are not putting to use. And like I said a minute ago, this is an all hands on deck kind of opportunity. Um, and so so we need to find the people. We have loggers who are out in the forest um, and, and, and who know the forest better than some folks sitting at their desk who have power over the forest. Um, and, and so we need to build the relationships that allow us to build the trust, to be able to trust the, the boots on the ground, um, to do things. To, and, and they're going to they're gonna mess up. I mean, this is the thing, too. We have a very low threshold for, for, um, for failure in, in American culture. We have to accept that, that to learn as quickly as we need to learn, we're going to make mistakes. We should have bumpers on that. Like, we don't want to, you know, there are some things you're not, we don't want to leave a community without water. We don't want to making a species go extinct. But within those bumpers, we have to accept that we're going to try things that are not going to work. We need to learn quickly, and then we need to try the next thing. I, I totally agree. That's a great philosophy. I totally agree. We just got to spur the, 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 the people in the state to think that way more. And, 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 and again, try things. You got you to try things. Chris? I love the bumpers reference, uh, Rob and, and, and Debbie. It's something I've heard before from from my own uh, dad. As as growing up, he says, "Hey, you got to put bumpers on, boy, because you're gonna, you know, you're gonna learn and uh, and and hit stuff." So let me tell you, let me ask you one question here. I know I wish we had a bunch of time to talk uh, about all the challenges that you're going through. And if you haven't already, what's the greatest challenge that you guys are facing that uh, working on rather in uh, in the network today? You know, really, I think the greatest challenge, and this transcends the network, um, it, you're, you're, you may find this surprising, but the greatest challenge is that we have billions and billions of dollars coming to California to work in all of these areas. And the fact of the matter is, is that we don't have the human capacity to put that those dollars to the best use that they could be put to. And we have many, many restrictions on how you use those dollars that are going to prevent us from from taking those risks and from learning quickly and from trying new things. It's if if we don't figure out how to build the human capacity in this space, then we're, we'll end up investing in old things. Uh, so there, let me be clear: lots of good things will also happen. We will not get the 
impact of those dollars that we need, again, to catch up with the, the pace of climate change. Right. So you just don't have the human capacity to put all of those resources to use. That's right. And and then I, just one other quick thing. And then we have to stop planning ourselves to death. We, we, yeah. we, every time there are dollars available, first you have to do a plan. We, we, tell, we make folks on the ground do spend two or more years doing plans. And then we say, no, okay, we're going to make it 18 months or maybe a year. But, but really we need folks to build the relationships, identify the actions and get to work. Right. In, in this industry, we're kind of going through what's called the gray wave. We see a lot of the people with a lot of experience, like a lot of people on your uh, uh, organization, you know, they, they've had their great careers and stuff. They're getting a little bit older. They want to kind of relax a little bit and retire. What do you think is going to need to help this industry? Because that's, that's you know, we, we have all these issues, and people is going to be a big issue getting people. How do, how do, we, how do we develop that, under, that underclass coming up or getting an underclass? Yeah, I mean, certainly that's one of the things the network is, is working toward is building that, um, that excitement and that energy that brings people. I mean, th things have to feel fun. And so we are working to do that, but we're, you know, we're one drop in the bucket. I think, um, I think across the board, we have to figure out how we meet, we meet this up and coming generation where they are. And, and, and in a good way, they're better systems thinkers than we are. So we have to figure out how we, we, we make the transition to, to help them understand how their system thinking is really a leapfrog ahead for, for all of us. And we have to make space for them to do it. Again, it's, young people don't want to come into the same kind of jobs that, that older generations want to come into. They want to be flexible. They want to get their hands dirty. We have to figure out how we restructure our workforce um, to be able to accommodate those new, new ways people want to work. Absolutely. Well, Debbie, we're really up against our NBC News Hour that we have to get off for. But we'd love to call you back and have you come back and continue this discussion because I think you have a, a great thing going. And, and I think I, want, I would love to have more people know about you and your organization. How can they reach you? We are at watersolutionsnetwork.org. Great. All right, Deb, thanks very much for coming on. We appreciate it. We definitely want to call you back and have you come back and finish some more conversation. Uh, again, thank you on behalf of the Water Zone and Chris and I, and, and uh, enjoy the rest of the evening. Thanks, Deb. Thank you, you too. All right, everybody, uh, we'll be we'll talking to you next week. And the one thing Chris and I always want.